Welcome to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. Way back in 2019, as the presidential primaries started heating up, the student debt crisis was shaping up to be one of the most pressing issues of the 2020 election. Of course, quite a bit happened between now and then, and for the most part, the issue has been moved to the back burner. Joe Biden's imminent inauguration, however, has pushed free college back into the fore. What will Biden do with respect to free college? Should college be free for all students or only some? Would a free college program supplant our current system of financial aid and student loans or just supplement it? I asked two higher education experts to weigh in, Kevin Carey of New America and my AEI colleague, Jason Delisle. Kevin Carey is the Vice President for Education Policy and Knowledge Management at New America, where he directs the Education Policy Program. He's a regular contributor to The Upshot at the New York Times, as well as a number of other publications. And Jason Delisle is a resident fellow here at AEI, where he works on higher ed financing with an emphasis on student loan programs. Most relevant to today's episode, Jason's recently published a compendium of his work on free college titled, Questioning the Case for Free College, Prices, Financial Aid, and Student Debt in Public Higher Education. Kevin, Jason, welcome to the report card. Great to be here. Thanks. So before we get into the arguments for and against free college, I want to take a quick step back and talk about the why of the issue, about the problem that free college is trying to solve. So during the presidential primaries, we heard quite a bit about the student debt crisis, which is a separate but related problem. When we talk about outstanding student debt, what sort of numbers are we talking about? Jason? $1.5 trillion. That's with a T? That's trillion with a T, right? That's right. And yeah, in terms of household debt, it's the second largest stock of debt after mortgages. The only thing people appear to borrow more for are their houses than their higher education. So can you break that down for us a little bit? I mean, who's holding this $1.6 trillion in outstanding loans? Um, yeah, so there's a lot of ways to sort of slice it. A really important way to look at it first off is that, you know, about 40 to 50% of the outstanding debt is for people who got graduate or professional degrees. So master's degrees, doctors, lawyers, um, that's almost half of it. And that's half of the amount, not half of the number of folks holding it? Yeah, it's it's not half the number of people, no, because because the people who have the graduate school debt and the professional school debt have a lot more than everybody else. So they're considerably less than half, um, but they're, the amount of debt is half, 40 to 40 to 50 percent. We actually, amazingly, you'll see this a lot with student debt numbers is we don't actually have that the exact number. Okay, we kind of have to triangulate and guesstimate that. Yeah, it's somewhere around forty to fifty percent of the outstanding debt. So the rest is for undergraduates. That doesn't mean that the rest of the debt is all for people who went and, and got bachelor's degrees. Um, we make student loans in this country through the federal student loan program for a lot more than bachelor's degrees and graduate degrees. You can get loans for getting an associate's degree at a community college. You can get student loans for pursuing a certificate, a six-month or a one-year program at a for-profit college or a community college. And that all of that you know, helps contribute to this big number of 1.5 or 1.6 trillion. We make student loans for a, a very wide array of higher education credentials. So, Kevin, 
That is a big number. And Jason's pointed out that some of it is for, you know, folks with graduate degrees or sort of more advanced degrees and earning potential, one would hope. How does the student debt crisis sort of animate the free college debate and discussion? Sure. I mean, I think it's, it's not just the size of the number, it's how much it's grown, right? So if you use the like most comprehensive number that I think the Fed uses, it's now $1.7 trillion as of third quarter 2020. It was $700 billion 11 years ago, right? So we've added a trillion dollars to that number over time. Now, those are nominal numbers, so some of that is inflation. And there's also just more, more people in this country and more people going to college. So it's, it's not all an increase in borrowing relative to the cost of going to college. But no matter how you slice it, people are borrowing a whole lot more money. And, and the other thing about it is you know, other kinds of borrowing vary with the economy, right? Uh, borrowing just is like a straight line for, for college. It's almost like immune to outside circumstances. So it just keeps getting bigger. And it is, I think, this sense of a student debt crisis, whether you entirely agree that there is one or not, is now sort of deeply infused in the generational self-identity, particularly for millennials, people who went to college. This sense that they had to borrow because a social compact that had been previously available, where you could go to college without debt, was torn down and removed and taken away from them. And their debt is the consequence of that. And that and that the move for free college really, I think, is a, a sense that we should restore a social bargain that we used to have so future generations won't be burdened with debt like the current generation is. I wanted to sort of build off that. I mean, I think that's a really good point about the the sort of psychology of all of this. And and because I think that that's lost a lot, right? People just stick with the whole argument of costs have gone up, so debt's gone up, right? And that's why people care. But obviously, there's more to it. And, and I think another part of the sort of, you know, how people feel about it and the psychology of it and is this fair, my sense is, and I don't have a lot of empirical, you know, evidence of this. It's something I'm certainly interested in sort of testing. But, but I think people's expectations and options for higher education, maybe in the last 15, 20 years, have grown a lot and changed a lot. So, you know, I read this book um, by Caitlin Zaloom called Indebted, and she profiles all of these students and families through these interviews about their student debt situation. And they're all dependent students, you know, so the traditional college student that most people think of 18 to 24 years old, and they're still, you know, dependents of their parents. And so she's interviewing them and we're getting the, the children's story. We're getting the parents story about their student debt situation. And over and over and over again, it is these descriptions of this desire to have this full college experience, this full residential college experience, a list of dream colleges, private colleges, um, and how these families are willing to stretch, really stretch to to pay for these things. I, I just, I don't know how much of that, you know, is fueling the student debt crisis and people's anxieties around student debt or how much and how much of that is really new you know i wonder if you asked your average baby boomer like what was their dream college and they might just look at you and say what in the hell is a dream college right I, there was no such thing when i was going to college and now you could ask lots of well, what's a dream oh i know what a dream college is it's you know and I, you know again i don't have a lot of evidence around any of this but i, I thought kevin's point was good in that there's more of this than just straight numbers well, that raises a, a really important question, which is the question of affordability. So 
what you're suggesting, Jason, is that over time, people have a set of preferences for more luxury goods, right? Like more expensive sets of, of college goods, and, and that would come with increased debt. But what motivates this free college argument is the idea that college is unaffordable, or at least is, is less affordable. So before we get to the proposed solution, and I want to get to that in a minute, how big is the problem of college affordability? I mean, is college unaffordable in the United States? Kevin, how should we think about that? Is it affordable? Well, I mean, there's a, it's a complicated question because it depends on which college, as Jason said. You know, and, and there's certainly, um, there's never been a time when expensive private schools were free in this country. There's never been a time that law school was free, or there's never been a time that graduate school was free. And, and if you put those things together, private, undergraduate, and graduate school, that's most student debt, 50-some percent, I think. So the solution that we're kind of circling around, which is this idea of making free, college, free public higher education, is a solution for the minority of the outstanding student debt. The rest of it just continues as it was. I want to chime in and say we actually got a harder number the, the amount that we think it is, is about 15% of the debt. 15%. 15% is the amount of debt that is used to finance tuition at public institutions, two-year and four-year. 15%. Just tuition, not living expenses and room and board and stuff? Uh, that, that's right. So, like, is it a four? I mean, you know, I mean, some context, sort of inflation-adjusted, the price of a private bachelor's degree has doubled over the last, say, 20 or so years, uh, the sticker price of uh, public four-year has tripled over time. But because public-private started at a higher place, they've actually, the distance between them has like widened. Um, now, that's the sticker price. It obviously, uh, that's not net scholarships and discount and financial aid and tax credits. And we can have a, a, a very wonky debate about the extent to which one should net off all of the tax credits or not um, in talking about whether college is affordable. Uh, I think Jason would say we should. I, I'm not sure we should. Um, it actually makes a fair amount of difference about how we sort of think about that. So I think we can say two things. College costs more than it used to. The sticker price increase probably overstates the extent to which it costs more than it used to, but it's still more expensive. That leaves open the question of whether people are getting more in exchange for what they're paying. It also leaves open the question of, is what they're getting worth buying, right? Is it just like luxury stuff or is it educational stuff? Just to help our listeners understand a couple of those things, let me repeat back what I've heard and uh, put it in a little bit more lay language. When you say sticker price, that means, well, to go to Boston College, tuition and fees run $48,000 a year, but most of the kids that go there might pay a net price that's substantially lower than that. So when we talk about sticker price being high, and the actual price the student pays could be substantially lower than that. So those are the two different prices we're talking about that increase at different rates. Am I getting that right? Yeah, that's right. And the, the difference between the sticker price and the actual price varies a lot depending on where you go, right? So at the average private college, students pay about half the sticker price. I think the, dis, you know, the average discount rate, which is the term of art used among financial aid professionals for, I think private colleges, I'm not sure private universities are part of this, but like for private colleges, I think it's it's 50%. If you go to community college, you're just basically paying what you're paying because the price is a lot lower to begin with. And then it kind of varies in between. 
Let me ask before we get to Biden's proposed plans on free college about why now, right? So free college plans that we're discussing today were obviously not on the table during the Trump administration. But just five or six years ago, it doesn't seem like the same kinds of proposals were on the table during the Obama administration or the vice president Biden uh, administration. So I'm curious, what is behind the drive for free college plans now? I mean, is it that the unaffordability question has has peaked in people's minds? Is it that unaffordability has actually rose in recent years? Or is it just the political Overton window is, is now open with a new administration? Well, let me just say, you know, in terms of, and we're backing up just a little bit, but on the affordability question, to the extent that that's driving it, I mean, I, I mean, I've been one of the things I've been trying to do in this in this debate is push people to use hard numbers in terms of what are the prices we're talking about. You know, I, how how much have have prices gone up at public universities, the institutions that are sort of in question here for free college, and the sticker price that we already talked about at public institutions has indeed gone up. You know, it's more than double for uh, in-state students at public four-year institutions. It's gone from, hard numbers, about $3,000 a year in today's dollars to almost $8,000. But that's the sticker price. That's not after all the financial aid that, that you can factor in. Now, if you factor in grants and scholarships, tuition has only gone up less than $2,000 since about, and the time frame I'm, I'm using here is about the past 20 years. So we have about a $2,000 increase. Uh, if you don't count, this is what Kevin and I were talking about. If you, if you don't count tax credits for tuition, like the ones that Obama and Biden created, if you count those, it's only about a $1,000 increase. So it's either 2,000 or 1,000 at public universities because of a big increase in student aid. So, so out of pocket, uh, you know, out-of-pocket price for students at public universities today after student aid, you're looking at something like, you know, $3,000 on average. So there's a number of ways to, to cut these numbers, depending on whether you're going to a public university, whether you're going in-state, uh, what the time is, what the discount rate is, what the sticker price is. Whew, there's a lot of, uh, of numbers in there. And of course, the political discussions around this carefully account for every one of those details before coming up with solutions. Um, so, but elections do have consequences and uh, President-elect Biden has laid out plans to address college affordability. So let's get down to the brass tacks. What is his plan? And Kevin, I'll see if, if you don't mind telling us both what that sort of plan is on paper or the, the promises that get made in the primary, and then we can discuss what parts of that might be politically feasible in the next four years? Yeah, and I think, I mean, to kind of, I'll answer that question by also answering your previous question, which is, you know, what changed since the Obama era to now, again, we added a trillion dollars to the outstanding student loan debt, and that changes the way people feel about things, and, and that's all those people who have all that debt. Um, but politics, right? You know, I mean, Bernie Sanders kind of rode the idea of free college to, you know, almost winning the Democratic primary uh, five years ago came back again, and this time was joined by Elizabeth Warren. And you sort of saw this sea change in the way that the you know Democratic primary was working, where everyone had to have some kind of plan to talk about a college affordability, which never used to be the case, right? You know, and so it just, that's 100% politics. And, and part of the negotiation of kind of bringing the party together at the end of the primary was that President-elect Biden 
uh, agreed to adopt the uh, Sanders and Warren approach to free college, which I believe now, I mean, it's always a little vague in terms of campaign promises for like obvious reasons, but you know, I believe it is essentially to make public higher education free for everyone earning less than $125,000, I think is where the Biden ended up in terms of, which I think that's where Warren was. Uh, Sanders always just wanted to make it free, for, like all tuition free for everybody. So it's uh, you know free for most, affordable for all, but using the same kind of underlying structure of a, a matching grant program uh, where the feds would put a certain amount of money on the table and the states would have to kind of match some of that in order to bring tuition prices down to zero. And just to put up the, the, the fences in the appropriate spots, when we talk about free college, we're not talking about sort of these super luxury goods where every private college in the United States would not charge tuition because the government would put the bill. We're talking about public universities, be they community college, two-year, four-year degrees, but not private universities. Do I have that right? Not private universities. And I should say also the Biden plan would just basically make community colleges free. The first two years of community colleges free across the board. No one has ever proposed making private colleges free. Or out of state public. <laughs> well, that's kind of an interesting question. I'm not sure that's true. It's always a little vague. They, they tend not to say that, you know, I mean, it's a little hard to, when you get into the policy details, that's one of the details. Well, that's a big detail too, because if you are a public university right now, you want to bring in out-of-state students because they bring a lot of dollars with them. And if we move to a free college for in-state but not out-of-state, then perhaps those incentives to bring in out-of-state students might get even more amped up because you can get a premium on those students, right? Sure. I mean, well, we see that now, right? I mean, there's a there's a group of uh, public universities that are majority out-of-state and have become so. And, and if you look at the price trends, you know, the, the cost, the out-of-state cost of going to a public university is closer to the market rate in the private sector than it is to the public sector. I think it's like, you know, maybe $10,000 in-state, $27,000 out-of-state, thirty-seven dollars for a you know, private college. Right. Jason, how does the Biden plan sort of relate to the other free college plans that were floated during the Democratic primary this past cycle? I mean, it's, it, it's the same, basically. But what Biden did it, late in the election was say, okay, I'm for free college too. I'll prove it to you. And on my website, I'll link to Bernie Sanders legislation. There, done. His legislation from 2018, 2017, 2016. So it doesn't really differ. It, it, you know, as Kevin mentioned, it, differed, it differs from proposals that are free college for everyone, regardless of their income, Really, the only difference here is that there's an income cap of $125,000. But again, that's that was a Bernie Sanders' original proposal in 2016. So that's now the Biden plan, like 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 word for word, literally. My question then is: All right, what changes would this bring in? This would be the function of this would be the federal government would do a matching grant to states so that they could spend those pooled dollars to cover tuition. Am I reading this correctly? Right. So it's a state's opt-in. You can't do, I mean, it's how, you know, Kevin's got some interesting ideas on this, you know, ways around it, but you, you can't really do a federal universal free college plan because these public universities are essentially creatures of their state governments. So it has to be a state policy. And in some cases, an actual university by university policy. So 
just right there, the, the notion of a national free college plan is really fraught. And again, it also speaks to sort of the, the sea change that's here uh, in this plan. Historically, the federal government has put out a voucher that students could use at public or private colleges, the Pell Grant, and more recently, large tuition tax credits, which are another kind of voucher. You could use it at any institution, whatever they charge. They don't have to agree to any sort of price controls or price caps, and there doesn't have to be a state opt-in. But this is, this is quite different. So, Kevin, what is the biggest strength of this plan in your view? I mean, what problems do you think that it would reliably solve or is, is likely to make a lot of headway on? I mean, you know, if you spend enormous amounts of money to make important public service cheaper, then that's a strength if you think it's worth the money, right? I mean, and so, uh, you know, one way or the other, it would have a, some combination of increasing access to higher education. More people would go. And people would have more money in their pocket to do other things with that they you know, wouldn't have to spend on higher education. And so I'm personally in favor of both of those things in the broadest sense, although, as Jason said, there's a lot of, I think, thorny questions about how you do that. But I don't think anyone looks back on the last 100 years of American public policy and regrets the money that we spent to make higher education affordable. Uh, quite the contrary. I think if you were to list the like consensus top 10 best distinctly American approaches to public policy, making higher education broadly accessible and affordable would probably be one of them. So, Kevin, there are some obvious strengths to this program. When you think about its liabilities, where are your concerns primarily rooted? I mean, my, my big concern is a couple of things. One, and this gets to this question of is public higher education affordable? Well, it depends on where you live. States vary a ton in the way they approach higher education. Some spend a lot of money to make college uh, very affordable. Some don't. Some of them changed after the 2008 Great Recession. We saw this interesting pattern where after the recession, basically every state uh, cut funding for higher education, both because they didn't have as much money and also because states always cut higher education more during recessions because they know that colleges can increase tuition to make up for the revenue loss. You know, some states, like New York and California, eventually put all that money back into the system. Other states didn't. You know, you look at a state like Arizona or Louisiana, they just cut funding for higher education, left it there, tuition went way, way up. But what it means is, if the federal government is going to come in and give states enough money to get tuition down to zero, it's going to give more money to the states that are currently spending less, and less money to the states that are currently spending more. So the example I like to use is North Carolina and Pennsylvania, which are both kind of politically in the middle states, right? You know, like had pretty similar uh, election results. You know, Pennsylvania went to Biden, uh, North Carolina went to Trump, but neither by very much. Both large states, really different approaches to higher education. North Carolina has historically spent a lot of money on its higher education system. Tuition is pretty low there. Pennsylvania has historically not done that. And public higher education tuition is pretty high there. So under the Sanders slash Biden slash everyone plan, Pennsylvania would get a lot more money than North Carolina because it's bad at this, in my opinion. That's not going to fly. People in North Carolina are going to figure that out like right away and raise their hands and say, what do you do? Like that, that doesn't make any sense. The second big problem is that if you go by type of institution, you basically see the same pattern. So here's a kind of an extreme example that I, I like to use to illustrate this. A free college plan is essentially a tuition replacement plan. All right, you're going to stop charging tuition, and we're going to use federal and state money to fill in the difference. So Auburn University has about 30-some thousand students. It's $450 million a year in tuition. East Los Angeles College, which is a community college in Los Angeles, also has 30-some thousand students. 
gets about $15 million a year in tuition. $450 million, $15 million. Why? Because Auburn is a public university for wealthy people, by and large. Uh, half of them come from out of state. The East Los Angeles College is not that. Um, and California spends a lot of money to keep tuition low or free for most community college students. So like the socialist dream is to give Auburn and its students hundreds of millions of dollars and East Los Angeles College almost nothing. That seems dumb to me. I don't know why we would do that. You also can imagine a scenario where that is in place. And I'll, I'll use the example of like the University of Virginia, mm-hmm. which is a very selective, very prestigious public university that's very expensive even for in-state students. If that institution becomes free, I got to believe they actually can become even more selective in their admissions. So now you have is a more more elite, more selective public college that probably is going to creep higher income in its applications. I also think then there's a compounding factor where free is expensive for governments. And what we see around the world is that when we have free college, governments like to scrimp on how much they're willing to fund these institutions. We know we know that happens in this country. And then you get a shortage of seats. So now you have a shortage of seats and you've got an applicant pool and you've got to fill those seats. And the way you ration them most defensively in higher education is by raising your admission standards. And when you do that, you tend to get a more affluent student body. The whole state opt-in question is kind of a big, big exclamation point for me. While the original Sanders plan was for like a two-thirds, one-third state match, no one's creating a state match in the middle of a recession when states are in a budget crisis. So if there is some big federal thing, it's, it's going to be a 100 to zero state match or something like that. Nonetheless, you know, we saw with the Affordable Care Act in 2010, even if you have an immensely financially advantageous state match, and remember, you know, Medicaid expansion under Obamacare was essentially free for five years, and it's still 90-10, I think, even today. We saw a bunch of states that didn't want to do it. They just said no for policy reasons, for political reasons. They just, you know, raised their hand and said, we're not interested in becoming part of this whole thing, I would have to assume the same dynamic would also play out with a a state opt-in approach to free college. Kevin, you made a comment earlier about when there are cuts during a recession, lawmakers may not have to worry about it too much because they understand that when they cut funding to higher education institutions, like in Louisiana, they can raise the tuition. But under a free college plan, you're agreeing to sort of shackle the revenue that your institution would get to just government decisions about how much should be spent there. So if that makes sense, would a lot of institutions be a little gun shy on chasing this free college proposal? I don't think that elite institutions want to be free. I, I, I think, I mean, they are not going to want to raise their hand and say this. But I don't think that like the University of Michigan wants to be a free college. I don't think the University of Virginia wants to be a free college. These are very wealthy, very privileged institutions that are in the business of selling something very valuable and expensive to rich and powerful people. People like to do that, right? Their competitors that they see are mostly not other public universities. University of Virginia doesn't see itself as competing with James Madison University. They think they're competing with Amherst or Harvard or Princeton. Other places that are also wealthy and prestigious and sell expensive things to rich people for a lot of money. I think they want to keep doing that because, as Jason said, once you get rid of tuition, all of a sudden the government is regulating revenue, which means the government is regulating spending. 
And I don't think these places want to relinquish all control over how much money they spend because people generally like to spend more money because money buys things that you like to have. You would be you would be walking away from all that under a free college plan. Now, again, those are the elite institutions. Most institutions are not elite. Maybe for James Madison, it's a good deal. I think for any community college, it would be a great deal. Um, so I don't mean to sort of talk down the idea of a big federal investment in making college more affordable. I just think that this kind of brute force, treat every public institution the same approach is probably the wrong approach. Well, let's talk about the other parts of the Biden plan that actually address affordability. And one is increase the size of the Pell Grant. Jason, Biden has argued to triple the current Pell Grant? Double it, I believe. Double it, okay. Again, keeping with the hard numbers, not change, hard numbers, uh, Biden has proposed a maximum Pell Grant of about $13,000 a year. So the grant would be doubled, but the cost would be tripled? Is that how that works? Uh, yeah, it's probably, maybe, maybe the cost is triple. Yeah, when you do something, there's a, you add in more and more, we have a paper on this, you add in more and more people up in the higher income, you sort of climb the income ladder, the bigger you make the grant. So families making uh, $90,000 to $100,000 a year would routinely qualify for, for Pell Grants under Biden's plan. And that's what makes it expensive because they don't qualify now. Right. And they wouldn't get the maximum, but they'd still get a grant. That's right. They would get a grant. Now, that seems like a lot of money. And it also seems like there's very few people out there that would currently say the Pell Grant is a fiasco that we should get rid of. Um, how far would uh, an expansion of the Pell Grant go in making college free, at least for a large portion of students that are going to relatively low cost institutions? And what's the comparative price to the government? Yeah, it, it's almost like that. I mean, th these policies don't really make that much sense together, like doubling the Pell Grant and having free public college for families earning less than 125000 Because, I mean, doubling the Pell Grant, you know, gets you, and we're talking tuition, free tuition, not living expenses. Doubling the Pell Grant, man, that gets you a lot of the way there without all these federalism problems that, that we've been talking about. I mean, it goes along a $13,000 annual Pell Grant for a maximum. And plus you add in you know, other aids such as state aid and institutional aid. And you're looking at free college for a lot, a lot of the current population attending public universities. And definitely, almost, I think almost all of them attending community college. No, I think that's true. But again, that's, that's only tuition. And, and we should keep in mind that for a lot of students, tuition is a minority of their total college costs. Um, how you think about housing is plays a big role in that, right? Because you got to live somewhere, but you can't you can't be working if you're going full time. But if you just if you look at the sort of the you know for uh, for almost anyone in community college and for a lot of students in public four year universities, the estimated cost of attendance that colleges themselves create the uh, tuition is less than half of that. So I think they go together in the sense that free college buys down tuition, and then the Pell Grant would be uh, used to cover. Uh, a greater per percentage of living expenses. Doing them both at once, yes, would be very generous. It's a lot of money. What's interesting is that, you know, really no one, and it's something I, I'm very much so interested in doing, but uh, no one has really shown what that looks like. Say, you know, for a family earning $75,000 or $100,000 a year, I mean, what you're looking at really then is free public tuition for a family earning maybe $100,000 a year, plus another $5,000 in grant aid. 
or a family earning maybe $80,000 a year, free tuition and maybe $8,000 a year in grant aid for living expenses. You know, we can have debates about whether or not that's a good idea, but I think my frustration is no one is really out there saying that's what this would do, and that's, in fact, what we mean it to do. So I'm, I'm imagining we have some whiplash among listeners who said, whoa, 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 I, I thought we were talking about free college, like no more tuition. But there's two sort of categories you can go here, and that is we're going to cover your tuition and fees. That's one set. And then we're talking about living expenses, which it, it, it seems would cover a much much broader set of costs for a given student. So Kevin, you brought this up multiple times that, you know, if you include living expenses, which sort of makes sense, right? You got to eat, you got to have a place to live, that a lot of the time that's more than half of the estimated cost of attendance. Do all discussions of free college hinge on on one or the other? Because it seems like we should be pretty specific about what we're going to cover with these plans when they just get talked about in the newspaper or at at political rallies. I mean, if you hear someone say free college, assume what they mean is free tuition of public universities, colleges and universities. Um, The whole question of how much we should spend to support, you know, living expenses and also books and materials, which again, for some community college students, the books could actually cost more than the courses can. And, And the distinction between the books and the courses, particularly with like online higher education and Electronic learning materials is actually blurring in, in a lot of ways. So we don't want to forget that part of the equation because it's important. But yes, free college means tuition. And then we have other ideas about how we can make the rest of it more affordable. Okay. So we've talked about sort of what's on paper. A lot of this will depend on what happens in special elections in Georgia. But uh, I'm curious, let's imagine for a moment that the elections go blue in Georgia. And so we have a functionally um, democratically controlled Senate, um, that would be the most auspicious set of uh, possibilities in the next uh, at least couple of years for a free college proposal to get some traction. Would that mean that the free college proposals that have been put out by the Biden campaign actually have political legs? Or I mean, could it happen? Or is this what we would consider too far of a reach even if we had a unified government under the Democratic Party? I I think that a really big, far-reaching free college agenda always depended on not only the Democrats taking control of the Senate, but also getting enough votes, additional votes in the will to kill the filibuster. You know, I don't don't see the uh, Republican, if there is a Republican minority, just saying, Sure. Yeah, let's let's just do this. Let's make college free. That's never been their agenda. And we currently have a 60 vote minimum for any meaningful legislation in the Senate. That seems pretty unlikely to me. I don't know. I mean, that's, you would have to get all 50 of the Democratic caucus to kind of go along with that. And that doesn't that's not really in the cards right now. So, you know, I think it's going to be tough over the next couple of years to get that done. I think it would be anything would, would be done. It would be negotiated with the Republican caucus and would be a lot more limited, which in turn is one of the reasons I think that we're seeing this big push for administrative debt forgiveness. Um, because there's this belief that that even if we can't do free college right away, we can just start forgiving loans en masse. And it's partly this desire to do something that's you know responsive to the uh, very large place that free college and college affordability now plays in the political discourse 
particularly on the left, in the face of a difficult legislative environment in Congress, even under the best of circumstances. Jason, assuming that you agree with Kevin's look at free college, what about other parts? Not not the debt forgiveness. We'll have to do another show on that, guys. But uh, on the college affordability side, do you think there's legs on either free college, but also on increasing the size of the Pell or any of the other uh, points? I actually think that what's interesting here is that Republicans are, as I think, as frustrated with college prices and affordability as Democrats are. And what's interesting here, you know, so for Republicans, just increasing the Pell Grant again, they're not big fans of that necessarily in that they say, well, because institutions will just raise prices and it really doesn't buy us any affordability. Um, I, I, I don't I don't think their case is as strong as, as they like to make it in that regard. But what you're actually seeing from, I think, the Democrats is they're saying sort of the same thing. They're sort of giving up on the Pell Grant. Now, they want to double it, but they're giving up on its, on its ability as a policy to make college more affordable because they're saying, we want price controls too. There has to be a price control, a price control of zero. Uh, this Pell Grant thing ain't working. And I think that is a huge admission and transformation among the Democratic caucus. And it's one I think that, that Republicans sort of agree with, many Republicans agree with as well, and which is why I actually think the, the biggest danger in some of the, this is that, you know, the, the Democrats and the Republicans get together and agree on price controls for universities. I mean, I, you, can, you can almost, it's almost there. They're almost there. That's what I think the, the potential is here. And I, I actually think that's a, obviously it's a sort of a, there are lots of problems with doing price controls. Um, we can talk about them, but I think that's one of the more interesting and less talked about sort of political realignments happening around student aid. So Jason, you've done a little bit of research in what other countries have done in terms of free college. Have you seen any parallels to what the United States might expect if they took a similar turn to other international examples? Yeah, I, mean, I think what's what's interesting is, you know, a lot of times, you know, advocates of free college point to international examples, but there are lots of international examples of countries abandoning free college in favor of, you know, a system similar to ours, which is institutions charge tuition and students can take out loans to pay that tuition and pay it back based on a share of their income. We have that system. That's a system that England adopted. They abandoned free college in the 90s. And, and went that route. Same thing with Australia. Australia is always talked about as a great higher education model. Well, Australia used to have free college. And then in the 80s, they got rid of it. They said, we got to charge tuition and we'll give people income-based repayment programs for student loans. What is interesting is those countries uh, abandoned free college because it essentially restricted access to higher education uh, because the government couldn't afford to fully fund free for everybody. So they funded it free for only a limited number of students. And then the institutions got selective with who they let in to those limited seats. And what you had was free college for upper income households uh, and not much for anybody else. So, you know, completely counterproductive. And so both countries said, well, what if we charge tuition, then universities could raise revenue and we can fund generous grant programs and a generous student loan program, and then people can afford it. So you've got more access, ironically, under a tuition system. And I think that's really important for the discussion because the, the argument is that free college will lead to more access to higher education. 
But the international experience in many, many countries is that free college has limited access. Uh, and you see countries moving away from it to increase access. And I'll add one more thing about, you know, Kevin made the point about how we're concerned about states adequately funding their universities and particularly in times of recession and free college is, is you know, a response to that. I'm doing a project right now, isn't published yet on, on free college in Ireland. Ireland actually went the other way and adopted free college in the 1990s. But what's interesting is they have free college and they have massive budget cuts in their higher education system. So it shows you, you can have free college and you can still have budget cuts. What happens uh, if you can't, the universities, well, they just add more adjuncts. Classes get bigger, buildings fall apart. Seats shrink, right? I mean, the number of seats shrink. So you can have free college and actually have all the same problems we currently have in the United States in the higher education system, right? You have concerns about quality, access, equity, and, and resource. Last question to go out on, and I'll ask both of you. If your goal is to make college much more affordable for a lot of folks, and you want to take action, and free college maybe isn't a practical or good idea, what would you say is the best way for the Biden administration to put their first foot forward here? Kevin? I will uh, pitch an idea that I've written about in a couple of different places. I think it's pinned to the front of my Twitter feed, Kevin Carey one, if anyone wants to read it, which is instead of having state opt-in, opt-out, and instead of saying that every public institution has to essentially adopt the same pricing policies, whether it, whether it really wants to or not, which is what free college is, just a very simple form of price controls. Offer a bargain to any institution, public or private nonprofit, that wants to take it. We haven't even talked about the effect of free college on the private nonprofit market, which, which I think would be significant and dire and a problem, actually, in a lot of places. The deal would be the federal government says, look, we will give you $10,000 per, say, full-time equivalent student in exchange for adopting a standard tuition schedule that would be very generous, maybe free up to $100,000, and then a, you know, a, a reasonable amount for families that earn above that. And then institutions could decide whether they want to opt in or opt out. And so what, what you would get is like your Auburns and your University of Virginia's would say, heck no, we, we can't afford that. We're getting way more than $10,000 a student now, net tuition revenue from our students. And also we like to be elite and to serve rich people. Fine, let them do that. And then that's kind of the, you know, they can just be elite and be all those things. Essentially, that's more of the private market part of the higher education system. And what's complicated is that our higher education system is simultaneously a vital public service that the government should fund and a vibrant private market uh, in which private actors sell things at market prices. And different institutions operate different points along that continuum. I'm saying let's focus on the ones that really are the public service part of it. Buy down their tuition and give them more money to be better at their jobs. You know, the, the, the problem for a lot of students isn't just, can I write a big enough check? It's, am I going to get a good enough education? Will the professors be well-trained? Will the class sizes be available? We need to actually invest in all of those things as well. So we, pre we preserve some of the autonomy and diversity in the system. We don't have the state opt-in out problem. We focus resources on institutions that really need it and students who really need it. And it would probably not cost as much money. Jason? Uh, yeah, I would say I think you can do a lot of that with a, with a larger Pell Grant. I mean, you don't need to double it, but I think you can do a lot of that with $1,000. In some ways, they're kind of the same thing. They're kind of the same thing. Uh, but you do have price controls, which I do think are, are 
Yeah. We probably need to get to it at some point. See, that, and that's the thing. So, and, and I'm, I'm not there uh, on, we've, we need to get the price controls, but this is my point that, uh, you know, I, I, the free college thing is, is a tacit admission that we need price controls with our federal student aid policies. I, I think those will probably do more harm than good. But again, I think that's where, you know, there, there are Republicans that, that, that may be willing to do a deal like that. Uh, there are lots of Republicans who like the idea of price controls for universities. I mean, every, yeah. every public institution is price controlled, right? I mean, the system we've built to educate most people is a system of price controlled institutions. It is not price controlled by the U.S. Congress, though. True. It's by states. At least price controlled by people who are somewhat closer to, to what it is they're trying to accomplish and, and looking at their, their own unique circumstances and their own political realities. I, I just think that the U.S. Congress will, will come up with a terrible fee schedule for universities to live by. Um, I, I have no faith in them to do that well, having, having been a congressional staffer. <laughs> I guess I look at I look at what state governments have been doing, and I have a lot of faith that they'll continue to do it badly, which is what they've been doing. So what I, you know, in, I mean, in some ways, this whole conversation is sort of premised on just kind of giving up on this notion that states aren't just going to keep being bad at this. And also, you know, look like in fairness, I mean, states can't borrow money, right? So they, you know, the business cycle hasn't been eradicated. You know, we're through like five or six consecutive business cycles now, where every single time the same thing happens, right? College budgets get cut, tuition goes up, never comes back again. We should just assume that's gonna keep happening. Yeah, here's where I would push back on that though. If we look at like the Great Recession, Congress massively increased the Pell Grant during that period. And that went a long way toward offsetting the increase in tuition. And I, you know, I don't think we should, you know, I think there's promise there as a solution to, to even what you're talking about, which is, which is very much so real, is that the states are going to cut their budgets during tough economic times and, and they're going to make the universities eat it and they're going to pass that tuition on to families. But we have historically seen the Pell Grant does a pretty good job of blunting that. And maybe we maybe we look at that more. But we're going to I mean, what we're headed toward is a, a nation where essentially we have half the public higher education systems are de facto privatized and half of them are. Right. And so. I guess I, I, I'm kind of not willing to just say, all right, well, federalism is what it is. And so in some parts of the country, if you kind of grow up, you know, you have a, a very affordable public higher education option. In other places, you just kind of got to pay market rates. Plus a large Pell Grant. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, if you're looking, if you've got a maximum Pell Grant of something around $8,000, even in a state where tuition is relatively high. $8,000 in, in Pell Grant. Um, plus, and you know, many of the states that have high tuition also have large need-based grant aid. You know, a lot of times we look at these state prices for tuition at their public universities, and we just completely ignore their, their aid programs. Again, this is my sort of nut price sticker price. I think the, the need-based targeted aid model just is, is not, I, I don't think, I don't think we're I don't think we should scrap that quite yet, uh, but I don't think the solution is a complicated pricing schedule emanating from the U.S. Congress. Well, I guess I, what I hope listeners take away from this is that the official position of AEI is a massive increase in the federal Pell Grant. I think we can all agree on that. Uh, well, remember, <laughs> AEI has no official positions, Kevin. We don't, we don't take positions. It's my position. Well, we'll have to leave it there, guys. It looks like the 
conversation or debate over whether increasing aid or using some system of functional price controls is going to be kicked down in the future. And if the Biden administration comes up with a more concrete legislative proposal, we'll bring you back on to talk about it. Thanks for being on the report card. Look forward to it. Thanks for listening to the report card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guests, Jason Delisle and Kevin Carey. I also want to thank our producer, Matt Rice. Remember, you can subscribe to the report card on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, take a minute to leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. You can send your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to us at ed.podcast at AEI.org. That's all for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus.